Good morning. Pastor Tom is in Seattle this weekend. He's um, speaking at a conference and very, very, very busy there. So you can continue to pray for him as things conclude for him there. So I have the privilege of speaking this morning, and I truly appreciate that Pastor Tom gives us the opportunity, all of us pastors, to every once in a while be able to speak and share our hearts. And um, I especially appreciate that he... He has a tendency to invite me to speak right before Easter. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, he knows my arts team and I are working toward Good Friday and Easter and my heart and my mind is already there. But he specifically said to me, um, he said, I want you to prepare people's hearts for um, Easter. And that gives me great joy because um, it's something I very much love to do. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to start turning our hearts and our minds toward the season of Easter, Good Friday and Easter, um, and kind of just get ready for what the Lord might be doing in all of our hearts over the next couple of weeks. Pretty much when um, Pastor Tom started to talk to me about this, I was in the midst of a show. I, um, I directed a show for Edgewood High School this year, and they this year they were kind of in an, um, just a place where I came in for the year to help them because they, they had torn down their auditorium. They're building a brand new auditorium. And their um, former director, who I know, went off on a national tour of a show, so he was a little busy. And um, they asked me to come in this year and just do their shows until they were ready to have this new auditorium and hire new people and all of those things. And I um, was privileged that they wanted to do the musical Godspell. And so I had the opportunity to do Godspell uh, with the Edgewood High School students. And because we had no auditorium, we were performing in a church, um, United Methodist Church downtown. And it was great to be downtown, to be somewhere different. But if you know um, anything, if you've come out of a liturgical church background, you know that this, the celebration of Lent, the season of Lent, starts on Ash Wednesday, and then it runs all the way up to Easter. Um, actually to Holy Week, and then you have Holy Week. And um, I came out of a somewhat liturgical background. I went to a Lutheran church when I was a child, and so I'm familiar with that. And it was been a while since I'd been in a church that celebrated Lent, and it happened to be um, we were doing a promo for Godspell because it was the next week, and so I went to their services and then came over here and got to go to our services. And it was it had been a while since I'd been in a service that was focusing on Lent, and it was the first Sunday of Lent, so it was right after Ash, not that long after Ash Wednesday. And, um, and it's funny because we um, all have varying levels of how we recognize that season, right? We all know Easter's coming. We're all making plans for brunch and the family to get together and maybe some Easter baskets and Easter egg hunts and things like that. Um, and I hope that you've got Good Friday on your calendar because that's an important part of this of celebrating as well, but we don't talk a whole lot in a non-liturgical church such as City Church about Lent, and um, so it was interesting, again, to be in that place where the focus was on these days, these 40 days leading up to the Holy Week and what that meant for our hearts, 
And for those of you who aren't familiar with what's behind Lent and why does Lent happen, the only thing you may know that is that people give stuff up for Lent and people eat fish. <laughs> and, so, and, and in Wisconsin, we're, we're, we like the fish fries, so we're really happy. Um, Lent, that all starts to seem to kick in even more. Um, but uh, beyond the giving something up, there's a reason for that, right? And out of Lent, we know that part of it is the 40 days represents Jesus' 40 days prior to his ministry where he went out and he fasted and he was tempted. That's where the 40 comes from. And, um, but more than that, it's like, what is the whole thing about Ash Wednesday and what's the whole point with all of that? And really what it comes down to is part of what Lent is, is it's a reminder of who we are and who God is. It's a reminder that we should be in a period of reflection and repentance to make ourselves ready for Easter Sunday, for that joy and that hope again. And so some of what comes out of that is the idea of that we're dust. And there's a, we know in Genesis that God created man out of dust. He breathed into um, this this formation of dust or soil of Adam, and, and life came. And that's, you can find that in um, Genesis 2. And even the name Adam, if you look at the roots of that, it comes from words like dirt, and even human comes from a word like soil. And so that idea that we're created out of dust, and it's unusual because I think we don't think about this always, but in Genesis 3.19, it says, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. And that's part of the curse that happened after the fall, is that from dust we were created, and dust we will return. We will die. We all will die. And that was reminded to us. And I think the fact that we're dust isn't something we really like to hang out and think about. <laughs> I, mean, in, I mean, in general, culture, culture's not really happy about dirt in general, right? We like things clean and not dirty, and we don't want to think about dust, and I don't think the majority of us want to be called dust. But I think sometimes there's something in us to remind, that we need to remind ourselves what that means. That man is sinful. Man is fallen, and we are made of dust, and this season of Lent is a report, important reminder that we are that man who needs to repent and to accept Christ's sacrifice for us. And so that's part of the remembrance. So what I want to do this morning is, as we know what Lent is, as we enter into coming upon Holy Week, which starts next Sunday with Palm Sunday, to just take some time to do the things that we're supposed to do in Lent, which are remember, reflect, and repent. And um, the remembering part is the part where we know the story. We go through the story. I don't know if you've ever done that during Holy Week, go through the story, or if you've taken time to reflect. I'm currently doing a Lent. Um, I have an app on my phone. That's a Bible app, and I'm doing a Lent devotional every day for 43 days. 
Um, whatever your format is, or maybe you've never even thought about Lent or you've never thought about Holy Week, I just want you to encourage you this morning to rest in what we're doing and to listen, and maybe something will inspire you in the next couple of days or weeks to take that up and to take that time to do those things of remembering, reflecting, and repenting to prepare yourself for Easter. But we are going to take some time to do that this morning. And... um, This remembering part, I know you know what those words mean, but I just want to take a moment to define them because as we go through this process today, I just want you to be in tune with what we're doing. Remembering means to take time to recall, right? Recall a person, an event, memories. Many of us remember many things that have happened in our childhood or our life, maybe last week, maybe even this morning, but taking time to remember is usually something that takes a little bit of effort. Sometimes we can't remember very well. We have to sit down and remind ourselves somehow. Some of us have really wonderful memories that come in an instant when you smell something or see something, and that memory just floods. Um, And I think that that kind of remembering is something that we want to associate with this week of Holy Week and this time of Lent and the scripture, that when we hear or see the things of Christ, that, that memory comes straight to our minds, that recall of Christ, that recall of what happened, that recall of what that means to us. And that takes us to the next place automatically, which is reflection. Reflection is about taking time again to think about things, Reflecting on our own lives, reflecting on what we're remembering. Um, Reflection can involve not just remembrance, but sort of this feeling of, um, for how some of you might be analysis, or some of you it might be um, looking at emotion, or whatever way you look at the world, use often when you reflect, use those pieces, whether it's a thinking brain or a feeling or whatever, to look at things. And so we want to include the whole body, the whole life, our minds, our hearts, our spirits in our times of reflection. And then repenting is taking time to acknowledge that we might need to change or we might just need to release something. I think quite often in repentance, are, which is very true, we look at, I'm sinful, I should repent for this one item thing I did. That's true. But sometimes repentance is just how we look at ourselves or a way of life. Sometimes we're holding on to something and God just wants us to release it. And that's an act of repentance. And so all of these things are a part of this journey we're going to take today, and I hope that you'll be able to take during the time of Lent. One of the things you might notice that at the beginning of each of those phrases, I said something. It takes time. And that is one of the number one things I've found with Lent, is it slows me down. I have to take time to do my devotional for Lent. I have to take time to read the scripture that I'm tracking through and following. I have to take time for things. And I hope this morning things might seem a little different than the normal service, but that's what we're doing. We're taking time for something I think is very important to us. So we're going to take a journey through what we would call Holy Week. And we're going to just 
go through and remember and reflect on each one of these pieces of Holy Week, and then we're going to take some time after that when we have communion for the repentance part. And then we're going to do some other things after that. So it's going to be a little unusual in that communion's not during worship. Communion's not the end of the service. <laughs> communion's going to be part of our time of remembrance and reflection and then repentance. And then I'll conclude with a few more things. So as we start this, I just want to take a moment to pray. And then we're going to di- di- dive into something what I'm going to call the divine paradox of Christ and of Holy Week. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your presence here this morning. Jesus, thank you for your death, your sacrifice. And Lord, we're just so grateful for the resurrection and the hope that it brings. Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning. Be with us, guide us. Open our hearts and minds to all that you might have to say as we remember and reflect. Amen. So, I've entitled the sermon The Divine Paradox because I really, as I've been pondering Lent, as I've been pondering Holy Week, I really see that there's this thing about Christianity, about Christ, that is a paradox. So I'm going to tell you the definition of paradox, in case you don't know. There's two here. A seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded and true. Or a situation, person, or thing that combines contradictory features or qualities. If you've ever followed the life of Christ and watched how he interacted with people, I would say that Jesus is a paradox. (laughs) Because when we talk about contradictory things that don't seem to all fit together, Jesus was just that. To begin with, he was human and God. I cannot explain that paradox (laughs) to you. In fact, I thought when, we st- when I started working on this sermon, well, should I spend some time on the theology of the divinity and the humanness of Christ? And I thought, oh my gosh, that just exhausts me thinking about that. Although I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> but I thought, no, I think I'm supposed to spend more time on the divine paradox of this Holy Week and what that means to us. So we begin with Christ, Emmanuel, coming to us as a paradox, as this fully human and fully man, which already begins to make us not quite sure what's going on. And that is something that can be studied and learned. There's a plug for Pastor Greg's classes there for you. And it's extremely important. But what I want to focus on this morning is how he lived out his life in his final days and what he said to us. And that paradox of living because I think it's what we're called to as well. Um, If you can recall the Gospels and the messages, there's so many times where Jesus says, you know, you've heard this, but this. If, If you read the scripture, one of the ones that came very, very true to me over this last time of Lent, um, and my, my story with the musical Godspell with the Edgewoodsons is, in the musical Godspell, it's basically the Gospel of Matthew. It's a beautiful musical because you get to hear Jesus' words throughout the whole thing. And Jesus is a character, and Jesus dies, and you just, it's this 
you know, you just get to feel it all. And to be able to do that in art and theater, and it was at Lent at the same time, just was great for me. However, there's one thing going on. Without giving you all the details, Godspell was probably one of the hardest shows I've ever directed in my life. Um, There were some things going on within the students that didn't make my life or many, many other people's lives very easy. Um, And it was hard because anytime you're used to, this show in particular, every time I've done it, the cast has become so close. And everybody's just, it's filled with the richness of Christ. And it's been wonderful. And that actually did happen for those students. They became a really solid community. But for many others of us who are on the production staff, it was really hard, hard to go through. Um, And I won't tell you all the details of why, but it was one of those times where I would walk into rehearsal, and this doesn't happen very much for me because I love to direct. I would walk in rehearsal thinking, I do not want to be here. I don't want to talk to these people. I don't want to do any of this. And you're also talking about my favorite musical ever, so that was just really difficult. And I'd walk into rehearsal, and we'd start on these parables, because this is what this is, all these parables. And all of a sudden, here's the character of Jesus saying to me, you have heard, hate your enemies. But I say to you, love, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I'd sit there and I'd go, are you gotta be kidding me? And that's actually the response in the show, because the show's kind of comedic, where the, the, the disciples are like, you've gotta be kidding me. <laughs> and it's like, no, there it is, right in my face. I am struggling with some of these students. I am struggling with some people right now I don't want to pray for them. I don't want to love them. They're not being very nice. But there, right in rehearsal, coming out of the mouths of the students is, love, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that reminded me of the paradox that we find because When do we understand what it means to feel righteous indignation of people who are not holy, but also love them at the same time? And that is a paradox I learned over this time at Godspell, is that (laughs) you are not doing what God has called you to do. You are not being holy. The very words coming out of your mouth in this show, you are not living out in yet. That anger, that frustration, that scene was in me, but I loved them. And that can only be God, right? Because I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to love them. But I had such a great love for them by the end of the show. And that I can't comprehend, and that is a paradox. And that's how Jesus lived. And that's what we're going to see as we walk through what he said to us during his time in Holy Week. So, let's take a look at Holy Week here. You're going to see that as this moves on, that we have different um, times. And if you're looking for something to do for Holy Week, I'd encourage you to just take a photo of this right now or write it down. And if you start on Saturday with the first scripture, the following Saturday you'll be on the final scripture, and that'll take you like right up to um, Easter. And 
So if you're looking for something to read, I'm taking it from the book of John. I've been spending a lot of time in Matthew because of Godspell, so I switched to John when Godspell finished and um, just really been falling in love with the book of John again because they all say things so differently. And so you're getting John instead of Matthew. Um, And we're gonna walk through this today and I'm gonna just talk a little bit about each one. But I encourage you, if you have time to start next Saturday with these and go through them, that'll take you through the journey and um, to just take time to reflect and, and walk through the Holy Week and prepare yourself for, for Easter Sunday. So the first thing we have is um, Jesus' anointing at Bethany. And again, we're not gonna go through every one of scripture. You can see those scriptures there and you can go through them later. But we know the story, right? We know that Jesus was at a dinner and um, Mary comes in and she has this oil that's really important oil. It's like, expensive. She pours it out on his feet and um, his head and, you know, and everyone's like, well, not everyone, but I think Judas is the one who says something in in the book of John. He says, that's really expensive. Why aren't we selling that oil and giving money to the poor because the poor need it? And Jesus' response is, well, the poor will always be with you, but I won't be. Which some level feels to me like a non-Jesus response, because don't you think Jesus should be like worried about the poor people? (laughs) But what he recognized was what was of value and what was worthy and worthwhile, right? Not that the poor weren't, but what he was about to do was important. And that this oil, that richness, even though he wasn't a person who needed this oil, his worth mattered. He had, the oil had value and this was gonna be poured out on him because he was going to leave, And it wasn't something they understood in that moment. And this is, I have a new appreciation for, with this whole paradox thing, with um, the disciples. Because constantly, have you read in, they did not understand. They were confused. This is all over the scripture. (laughs) And then I, you know, I suddenly, sometimes I'm like, guys, why don't you get it? I mean, we have a little bit of hindsight going on here, right? And I was like, oh yeah, we're kind of stupid like that too, aren't we? We don't get these things that God's showing us. And so I'm starting to have a little more compassion for them when they're like, I don't get what's going on. Why is this happening? They didn't understand that he, he had something he was going to do that was more important than staying with them. Because all they could understand is that staying with them and walking with them and all that they've been doing was important. Why wasn't he going to do that? Sometimes there's something of value that seems like it shouldn't be, like leaving, (laughs) or like the person that's getting the oil poured out on them. We think something else should happen, but God doesn't look at things the same way. He sees worth and value in things that we don't understand. Then next we have the entry into Jerusalem, and this is known as Palm Sunday to many of us, the triumphal entry, all of those things. And here, this is a paradox we might be a little more familiar with because he comes into Jerusalem as a king. And he is, right? He is the Messiah. He is the king. But he's not a leader. He's a servant in the sense of what they, how they look at things. He's just this common, common Jewish man who's a rabbi from Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. He lived in Nazareth. I mean, none of him is important. He was not born to um, someone who's in power. None of this. And here we have, again, this paradox 
of a king who is not got the attributes of what the world thinks is a king. In fact, this is part of the problem, right? This is part of why some of the people had issues with him. Is he was not coming in and doing what they expected. He was not coming in and getting rid of the Romans, reinstating all the things in the, you know, that the Jews had had before, having a Jewish king, all the things they expected the Messiah to do. He wasn't doing that. And that made them angry. He was loving people. He was healing people. He was walking with people. This to them made no sense. This was contradictory. But it's who Jesus was. And then next we come to number three, the prepar- what I'm calling the preparation. This is that time before the triumphal entry, before we get to the upper room and some things are going on. And Jesus... Um, In John, he's just got these great times where he sits down. He's continually trying to tell his disciples he's going to die, and they don't get it. And then every once in a while, they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And so in John 12, 24 through 25, he's talking about his death again, and they don't understand. And he says this, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, and anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There's a paradox there. We have death and life all together. Something has to die to be alive, and we have, if you love your life, it's worthless. If you hate your life, you will have eternal life. Again, in this world, in the Jewish culture, in our culture, this does not make any sense. If we look at our own American culture, loving our life is what we're created to do, right? To find what we individually need, our passions, our dreams follow that, and to just make sure that everything we want in life will make us happy. But Christ is saying that this is not what we should do, that we should hate that, and I don't, you have to decide as you reflect with Christ what that means for you. Because in order to have eternal life that matters, we hate those things and we love different things. That we have to die just like Christ in order to have life. And as we move toward Good Friday, in the thought of that remembering our death and taking up of our cross just like Jesus took up his own. And then next we have the upper room. And here we have another example of a paradox that I've already slightly mentioned, and this is the idea of those who are um, leaders or masters being servants and that everyone is equal. And we see John 13, 12 through 17. Jesus is with his disciples, and he he says, when he finished washing, washing their feet, he put clothes on and returned to his place Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. He's changing some ways of thinking here. In fact, when he wanted to wash their feet, Peter's like, no, 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 I should be washing your feet. And he's like, let me wash your feet. Peter didn't understand again. 
And we don't understand because this doesn't make sense that the one who is in charge is going to serve because our culture doesn't have that idea and theirs didn't either. You're either a servant or you're in charge. You can't be both. But in Christ's paradox, yes, yes, we can. We can have righteousness and life and God give us things to do while also serving others. We have within us the call to be a servant and not just the master. And then you know from the upper room that he moved on to the garden. And the garden is a place where they're in John, there's a lot going on. I think they spend more time with the scriptures with the upper room in the garden in John than any of the other gospels. It's where Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for the world. He prays for us who are going to be believers in the future. There's so many wonderful things going on. Um, and it's such a wonderful time where I finally think the disciples are sort of kind of getting what's going on at the end of the upper room conversation and into this garden time. In John 16, 20, it says, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn when the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And he's, this is when they say, Oh, you're finally speaking plainly. I think they're starting to understand what's happening. And what he's saying is, you are about to feel great pain and sorrow. But in this great pain and sorrow, there is life and joy. And they don't get that piece of it yet. They're starting to understand that something's about to happen. But do we realize that in the actual way that this all works, that we have to embrace the pain and the sorrow and the grief in order to have the joy and the life and the hope. We can't jump to the one. And our, and our society says, yes, you can. We can just have happiness. We don't, it's just easy. Just make everything easy. We don't like discomfort. We don't like discomfort. But in embracing our cross... We have to meet pain and sorrow and grief and discomfort. We have to die like that seed in order for life to exist. And so we have a paradox again of mourning and joy, grief and sorrow, and happiness in life. And then we move on to the trials. The paradox here is so interesting to watch because there's a lot of confusion on Pilate's part. He's like, I don't understand why you're even here. He says, they say you're the king of the Jews. Are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus isn't like helping him. Jesus is talking about being a king, but not in a way that Pilate gets. And there's, again, this whole thing of identifying as a king. Pilate just wants him to be a king like the Jews are saying he's a king. So he, if he says that, then he knows what he's doing. But Jesus is not as easy as that. <laughs> it's not an easy definition, He is the king of the Jews, but not in the way they think he is. And so we have this continual paradox of how Christ answers and how Christ lives compared to what everyone else is expecting, including Pilate. And then he has no heritage that gives him that kingship, so Pilate's finally like, okay, what do you guys want? And and the crowd picks Jesus over Barabbas, and he's sent to the cross. (laughs) 
And at the cross, this is an interesting paradox because how would we normally say a king finds freedom for his people? How would that be done? War, right? Physical violence, killing somebody to get freedom for his people. That happens, it's just different. His war is not on the Romans or the Jews, his war is a spiritual war. And the physical violence is on himself and the death is his, not someone else's. We have a king who gains freedom for his people, but in a very paradoxical way. And they put a sign up him above him that says, this is the king of the Jews, and he is the king of the Jews. But they mock him for it, versus accept and receive him for it. Through Christ's suffering and through his death, and that war that he rages on the spiritual realm of darkness brings us freedom and healing and cleansing. And then the end is the burial. And he's put, a, he's put away into this tomb and we know that Joseph of Arimathea had been secretly following him because he was afraid of the other leaders. And, but he, you know, he and others put him away into a tomb and I wonder if they think back to what Jesus said about his death. Because way back there in that whole upper room garden conversation in John 16, he said this, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Jesus knew that when he died and he went back to heaven, that the Holy Spirit would come and something would change, and he had to die and leave for that to happen, die, resurrect, and go back to heaven in order for the Holy Spirit to come. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Because Jesus knew that the evil one was condemned and that the world was wrong. And in his knowing that, he had to be very paradoxical. (laughs) He had to leave all that he had, people he had been with, things he had built, people he had shared with, a community that had been created. And he even tells them, you're probably going to (laughs) die. Nobody really wants to hear that. (laughs) He's like, you're probably going to die, but this is why. That sometimes death is worth life and is life. And sometimes me leaving brings greater things that will help you to continue on and my kingdom to be changed. So, if not quickly, we have gone through and remembered each of these points of Holy Week and reflected a little bit on it. I hope that you take it home and 
do the same. But I want to take time this morning not to stop with the remembering and the reflecting, but to repent as well. So the ushers are coming up right now, and we're going to take communion together. The ushers will pass out the elements, and a little differently than when the worship team is usually up here singing, we're going to actually watch a video, give you some time to reflect, to repent, to do whatever you feel you need to do before the Lord. And then we're going to take time to remember together through communion. Because it's what the Lord asked us to do. He said, remember me. Ushers can come ahead and they're going to pass these out. Again, I encourage you to take this time. But then I will come back and say some more things and we'll take the communion together so you can just hold on to the elements while I, um, until I come back up. And also, if you are newer here or um, haven't been a part of our communion before, we encourage you, if you know Christ, to please join us. Um, you don't have to be a member of this church. We just know that Christ asked us to remember this together as believers. And if you are a believer, we certainly would have you join us this morning. So let's take some time. Time. Remember, reflect, and repent. And then I'm going to come up and tell you a little more about the story. And so in communion, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And quite often when we do communion together, it's in remembrance of the night that he was betrayed and the events that happened. But I want to ask us this morning to do this in remembrance of all of the things that we just saw. In remembrance of the anointing in Bethany, in remembrance of the triumphal entry, in remembrance of the words he spoke to his disciples to tell them how to live and to explain to him them what was going to happen, in remembrance of that upper room, in remembrance of that garden, in remembrance of betrayal, in remembrance of trials and questioning, in remembrance of floggings, of carrying a cross, of nails being pounded into his hands and his feet, remembrance of pain and agony, remembrance of blood spilt and body broken. And so this morning, we have this piece of bread which is a symbol of his broken body. And he said to eat it in remembrance of him. So Lord, today we eat this in remembrance of your brokenness and pain that you experienced on our behalf so that you could set us free. Let's eat together. And this cup, he said that it represented a new covenant, spilling of blood, but it was his blood. Not a lamb's blood of the old covenant, and not, as I said, a king who's going to go out and war and kill everyone, and that blood was going to be spilt, whether it was innocent or not. But instead, truly innocent blood, 
spilt for us so that we might be cleansed. Let's drink the cup together. And in remembering this morning, I have one more thing I want us to remember because it's extremely important. And it's the paradox of the resurrection. Because the burial was not the end. Thank God the burial was not the end. (laughs) I can't, again, help but feel out of the confusion of those disciples and followers of Christ, what was going on? And we get now that you're dying, (laughs) and we get that you said something about raising again and all these things, but we we know that this doesn't just normally happen, and yet, what did we see before the anointing at Bethany? We saw you raise Lazarus from the dead. And if Lazarus can raise from, be raised from the dead, maybe there's this hope, tiny little hope in the midst of the confusion that something might be different about this death, that this death may be different. And we know that it is. Because Death and life can go hand in hand in God's world. And sorrow and joy can live together. And sinfulness and redemption can be found. Sinfulness that is cleansed by blood and redeemed in each of us. And so the great truth of the paradox of the resurrection isn't just about Christ and that death could be different, but it's about us. In the end, we are the great divine paradox. It is us who represent the biggest paradox that God could ever have. Yes, Jesus is an amazing divine paradox that we can't comprehend, but he was sent to this world, to be Emmanuel with us, to have his body broken and his blood spilt because they wanted us to be the divine paradox. Because if you remember, we're just dust. We're sinful. We're nothing. We're fallen. We can't be compared to God, to Jesus, to that great divine paradox, never. How do we live like that? How do we follow his example? How do we, because we're dust. But through the divine paradox of Christ, through the divine paradox of his death and resurrection, sinfulness can be redeemed in us. And so, Here is the great divine paradox. We are dust and we are holy. We are ash and we are sublime. We are vapor and we have infinite value. The worship team is going to start a song and I want you to just continue to stay with me here because I'm going to talk a little bit as you hear this song. But I'm going to read that quote again. 
We are dust and we are holy. We are ash and we are sublime. We are vapor and we have infinite value. you to think about the dust and the soil that you're created out of and I don't know what that looks like to you we all have our different experiences with soil and dust and dirtiness but I do know this that we often feel that way and perhaps you see yourself right now covered in that dust that soil that dirt and I don't know what that means to you I'm going to let the Lord speak that to you what that covering of dust and soil and dirt means to you. But we've been in pain, we've been alone, and we've been wondering, (laughs) can I change? Maybe for some of you, you don't know Christ and you've never known Christ and you're like, he can't take me. Maybe for some of you, you're just weary in recognition of your sinfulness. Or maybe some of you are coated in something you just can't release and get rid of. I don't know. But we're all covered in it, that dust that we're created out of. The question is, (laughs) all this dust and dirt, could something new come out of this? Could life come out of my death, my dirtiness, my sinfulness? Could, Could I have that within me? Because when a garden springs up, it's already in that dirt and that dust. It's there. It's there underneath. All it needs is the sun to shine on it and the rain to fall and then something happens.
want you to know this morning that the sun is shining on you and the rain of cleansing is falling on you. That within you is the end of the story, the resurrection. That within you is the paradox that we are dust, but we're of infinite value. We are sublime, we are eternal. you today that as the worship team is going to continue I'm going to pray for all of us right now and the lights are going to come down I want you to stay here because the Lord is making you new he is cleansing you he is filling you and whatever dust and dirt has been on you for the longest time is going to go away And as they finish out this song, whatever you need to do to receive that hope, to receive that new life, I encourage you to do that. Once this song is over, Nathan will dismiss everyone and we'll have prayer teams down here as usual. But let's just take this song to final things in our hearts and our minds. To remember and to reflect and to repent. Lord, I acknowledge that I'm dust and ash and vapor, but I acknowledge that you are the risen Lord who makes me new and makes me of infinite value and beautiful and sublime. Would you rain down on us this morning? Would you make us new? Would you renew our hearts, renew our minds, our bodies? Bring healing, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen.